0: y'all start turning to Romans 8, we're going to look at a couple of verses, we're going to step out of the Gospels tonight and look at Romans 8, and uh, tonight we're really going to keep actually following with uh, y'all's grace talk this morning, this is a continuation of that in many ways, (laughs) there you go, Romans 8. And actually, um, we're going to do something. Ryan and I actually had a debate about this as we were preparing for this week a couple weeks ago. And I think I'm right, obviously. Thank you. Somebody tell Ryan that. Um, But actually, in a serious way, we kind of debated about this. What I want to talk about for the first half of our talk tonight is death and its imminence, the fact that it is near. And Ryan and I sat and talked for a while together because we remember being 15, 16, 17, 18, and death's nowhere on your radar. Uh, it wasn't on my radar. Maybe some of you, it's, it's been close in your life, um, maybe to you personally, maybe within your family, and for that reason, you've thought about it, uh, and, and so it's not foreign to you. But for the most part, at your age in life, and and there's a lot of good things about this, you don't even know that you think you think you're invincible. Um, Death is is just nowhere on your radar. And I actually want us to contemplate our death tonight. I want you for the first couple of minutes even to just simply meditate just on this fact. And here's how I can prove to you um, that sin... We get broken up about it in different settings for different reasons. Sometimes we're not broken up about it. Sometimes we think it's really evil. Sometimes we think it's kind of evil. At different times we grieve how bad it is to differing degrees. You know, sometimes, you're just, sometimes it doesn't weigh heavy on you. I can prove that sin's the most evil thing in the world ever, and it will break your heart. Because what sin has done is brought death into this life. And this is a morbid thought. I recognize this, and it's dark. But here's what sin has done. Sin has made it so that, and this is 100% true for everybody in this room, regardless of whether or not you're even a Christian, sin has made it so that every relationship that you have with a sibling, with a parent, maybe with a spouse one day, will end in sorrow. Do you realize that? Because death is here, there's not a good ending to relationships. Every relationship ends in death. Your best friendship, your best romance, your best family relationship will be cut by death. Have you realized that? I want us to begin to contemplate our death. Kevin Twitt is the guy who um, started the Indelible Grace movement. You might be familiar with that, kind of taking old hymns and putting them to new music. We've sung several of them tonight. And something he says all the time in worship on Sundays is he says, worship is preparation for death. So I want to meditate on that tonight. Have you thought about your death? Have you contemplated it? Contemplating on death can be a very healthy exercise. What it does is it forces us, it puts everything in perspective really quickly. Right? puts the the pettiness of our lives, the, the different little petty conflicts we have. Whoa, 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 Death all of a sudden puts them in perspective. All the little anxieties we have that are ridiculous about school stuff and social stuff, the small ones. Contemplate death. All of a sudden, those things just kind of fade into the background, don't they? This is the way um, uh, my pastor in South Carolina, when he used to live there, he says this. On some level, what most of us are trying to do with our lives is distract ourselves from the eventuality of our death. Understandably so. What we're trying to do with most of our lives is distract ourselves from the eventuality of our death. I want to introduce tonight that it is a good, a good thing to contemplate your own death. And actually, I'll argue at some point tonight that that's actually one of the main things we do on Sundays, or at least it should be what I also want us to see is that it is, contemplating your own death is vital to freeing you to be a servant. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at Romans 8. I know you all looked at it this morning. Um, I don't, uh, so here we go again, Romans eight, eighteen through 23. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together as in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for the adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would sober us tonight with the reality that death is imminent in our lives. Dear Lord, and I pray that you would heal us with the reality that Jesus has conquered death. Be with us, Holy Spirit. Teach us, teach us, work in our hearts Pry through all the hardness and all the pride and all the things in us that doesn't want to deal with that. Dear God, I need you to teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you all haven't figured out at this point, your uh, conference directors have invited two SEC college football fans to speak to you, and I realize this is not SEC country. So I hope you don't feel alienated the fact that we get up here every night and talk about Tennessee and Alabama football, but that's just who we are. And I'm an Alabama fan, and let me tell you something about being an Alabama fan. It is absolutely awesome. We dominate all the time, pretty much. Um, hey, I'm just saying what's true, y'all. Sometimes you got to hear hard truths. <laughs> and I just got to tell y'all those kind of hard truths. I mean, 14, 14. 14. You know how many 14 is? I don't have enough fingers to count our national championships. I got to go to the toes. Anyways, it's, you know, some of us are born. Anyways, (laughs) this past year, Alabama won its 14th national championship. And I know you're thinking, maybe after 14, maybe after 13, it gets boring. No, it's still fun to win every year. But (laughs) when I watched the national championship game, I invited Stanford students over to watch it with me, which was a mistake. I was trying to be a Christian, and trying to be a Christian is a mistake so many times, but that's part of your sanctification talk. Um, (laughs) Invited all the Stanford students over, and I'm a silent, passive-aggressive sports viewer. Some people are very explicit and loud, and you hear all kinds of language and all that kind of stuff. I'm not. I sit, and I try to wear shirts that don't show that I'm pitting out, and I'm just (laughs) tense, And I lean back and forth with like my whole body contracted and all this kind of stuff all throughout the game. And uh, you might or might might have watched the game. As you know, Alabama won its 14th national championship again. I know it feels like they do that every year, but um, (laughs) am I wearing that one out a little bit? Um, Watching the game is infuriating and It's tough. And that game, if you watched it, even if you didn't watch it, if you're a football fan, it was back and forth. It was ugly. It was low-scoring. Alabama could never really kind of get out of kind of the shadow of LSU for a while because they were only kicking field goals. and They were making mistakes. They were making bad defensive calls. They weren't able to kind of bust through on offense. They were always getting held. And I was a nervous wreck, freaking out. Couldn't. My job is to love Stanford students. I completely failed at my job that night. I ignored all of them. Slightly irritated that they're all there, especially when they wanted to ask me questions. And um, <laughs> it was nerve-wracking. But I tivo the game, and like every faithful Alabama fan, I've watched it three times since then. <laughs> Here's my point, and this goes, this, this goes back to our sobering point tonight. Three times since then, when I hit play on the TiVo, And I watch kickoff, guess what? I see the mistakes, I see the fumbles, I see the interceptions, I see the bad reads, I see all that stuff. But I already know the final score. And that completely changes who I am as I watch the game. When I didn't know the final score, nervous wreck. When I knew the final score, bad things still happened. I had utter peace, even joy. Because I knew the end. That's my point. That's really my whole point for tonight, is that when you know the end, and Jesus is screaming the end at us all the time, the Bible is, when you know the end, when you know the final score ahead of time, doesn't mean there won't be fumbles, doesn't mean you won't throw interceptions. But when you already know the end, you actually won't sweat those. You won't even sweat the hard things. Knowing the end, the final score already, completely and utterly changes who you are As you live this out. And what Paul is screaming at us in Romans 8. Is he is screaming at us the glorious end. This is why I want you to contemplate your death. It's because I also want you to contemplate the resurrection. I want you to know that Jesus wins. And that his people will be with him. And that they will be with him because he has made them clean. Not because you're moral enough or PCA enough or homeschool enough. Or republican enough or whatever it is. Or bible study enough or devotional enough. Or are you F enough? Or Rush Limbaugh enough, right? None of that qualifies you for the kingdom of God. None of it. Jesus does. You know the final score. If you're in him, you'll be with him in the resurrection. And what I want us to see tonight is first, first thing I want you to see is that you are groaning, we are groaning for the end. And you heard it this morning. Paul talked about it. Paul and I kind of shared notes a little bit, so this will complement everything he said. The first thing I want you to see is Paul is saying we are groaning. Not only we are, but creation is groaning for the end, for glory, for the resurrection. We are groaning. Every, everything in your life, I dare say every negative emotion you have, is your soul and your spirit testifying to you that this is not the way it was supposed to be. Every social insecurity you have, right? You have it here this week. You're looking at social groupings. You're wondering where you're fitting in, and you're wondering, why don't I fit in? How come they fit there? How can I be more like that person? Why don't they notice me? Every social insecurity you felt this week is the image of God in you. It is your soul. It is your spirit saying, I wasn't supposed to feel this way. It is you groaning for the resurrection when you would never feel that way ever again. Everything you hate about your body, and everybody hates different things. And actually, girls, rightfully, are more spiritually mature in a sense in that they can be more honest about this than guys can be. <laughs> they're further along in this, guys. Further along in this. Our bodies, we don't like them. We don't like them because of the way they're shaped. We don't like them because of their impairments. We don't like the way it looks. We feel like we're at war with them. Okay, all of that is your soul, is your spirit, is the image of God You and you, Screaming! I wasn't supposed to be like this. I wasn't supposed to feel at enmity with the way that I was shaped. Why do I? Why do I hate this? Why does it betray me? Why is it broken? Why is there pain in it? Why is there pain in the bodies of the people around me and my family? That is you. What I want you to get. To see, I want to get you to see is all the pain you feel. However it looks, whether it's relational, whether it's physical, whatever it is, psychological, spiritual. That pain is your soul screaming at you for everything to be made right again, that it wasn't supposed to be this way. All of our inadequacies, our communities and our relationships, right, are frustrated. The people you live among with your families at your school, at your church, there's some good things to enjoy. Praise Jesus for that. But there's so much brokenness and there's so much angst, right? And as soon as you seem to maybe get on a good page with your parents, like, why can we not just get along? Maybe you're even mature enough to say, like, this... Both parties, you know, are maybe responsible for the friction in this relationship. It's not just them. Maybe it's me too. But that angst is your soul screaming that it wasn't supposed to be this way. It is your soul screaming, please, resurrection, come. Our psychological self, right? Your psychological identity. you have learning about it this week, your personality, your gifts. And yet at the same time, you've learned so much about yourself this week we feel so lost trying to understand ourselves and how we fit into this world and who we're supposed to be and into friendships and into vocation. And even though so much light maybe has even been shed on kind of who you are and understanding yourself this week, we still feel lost. I'm 33 years old and I have four kids. I have a job that I love. And I still don't know who I am. I'm still, I'm still insecure every day about my job. I still can't figure out why I'm so fearful. I cannot figure myself out. I am, I am at odds and completely misunderstanding myself. Y'all, that is our souls screaming that it wasn't supposed to be like this. Our moral self. Right? Whatever it looks like, it ticks on different forms in everybody. We're trying, you're paying attention to the sanctification talks, and you're really even trying to hear like, how is it that the Spirit changes me? How is it that I don't lean on my own efforts and my own will? And we try, and then, of course, and we go to war, and we keep running into ourselves. Right? We're at at war with our moral self. You know? That is our soul, and that is our spirit screaming. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Jesus, will you make it right? This is my point every ounce of insecurity you feel, every tear, every tear that you shed, every sense that you don't fit, that something's wrong, that you need something, every instance of sorrow, that is your soul screaming. Please make it better. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Please don't let it continue like this. And while we can distract ourselves for small periods of time, right? Thank you, Twitter. It keeps coming back, doesn't it? Even Twitter, even Facebook, even Netflix. Can't numb it permanently. Maybe you disagree about the Netflix. But uh, I want you all to get in this, in this feeling. I want you to feel the depth of it and the difficulty of it. Every wrong you feel or sense or experience is the image of God God in you. You're created in his image, screaming. It wasn't supposed to be like this. And here's what I want you all to see. This is the good news. The gospel doesn't stop at the cross. And I think a lot of times we think that's where Jesus' work has stopped. The cross is central. It's instrumental. You can't get in on the resurrection without it. It is the means by which we are made clean and made right with God so that we can join him in the new heavens and the new earth when everything's made right again. We're not right. We're not fit for God's presence. And the fundamental thing that took place in the cross is that our sins washed away. The fundamental principle is this. This is the way my pastor said it in South Carolina. For something dirty to get clean, something clean had to get dirty. That's what happened at the cross. For something dirty to get clean, something clean had to get dirty. But Jesus' work didn't stop there. And it can't stop there. And Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15, if it did stop there, Christians are to be pitied above all people. Did you know that? Paul says, if Jesus' work stopped at the cross and nothing happened after that, then Christians should be pitied above anybody else. God's work of salvation, its completion, its consummation, is when we join Him in the new heavens and the new earth. It's creation restored, it's things the way they were supposed to be. Bodies, communities, minds, hearts, creation healed. The cross purchases our entrance into creation, renewed and restored. It's creation renewed and restored to us in perfect relation with God, joining him and each other in the new heavens and new earth. Y'all, that's the end of Christianity. That's where it's going. That's the conclusion. That's the final score. Here's the application to this point. First of all, feel free to groan. Paul said this this morning. I won't reiterate it too much. Some of us are afraid to groan. Some of us think it's unspiritual to groan. Y'all, groaning is probably the most spiritual thing you will do. It it really might be the most spiritual thing you do. To feel, this world is at odds with itself, and I'm at odds with it, and I'm at odds with God. Jesus, make it new again. Jesus, heal me. Y'all, that's the most spiritual thing you'll do, is groan, is hate bad things, and hate bad pain in your life and the pain of others, and groan about it. Jesus did it. Jesus groaned over the death of his friend Lazarus. He weeped over it. Feel free to groan and know that Jesus wins. There's a story that's kind of passed into myth about seminarians sitting in the basement of their library studying the book of Revelation for their class and debating some of the nuances of all the weird imagery in Revelation. And in kind of an arrogant moment, one of the seminarians... Sees a janitor pass by. Probably not Ryan Moore, but maybe Ryan Moore. (laughs) Um, And in a moment of arrogance, pulls him aside and says, hey, we have a question. Maybe you can answer it. And they said, can you explain the book of Revelation? And the janitor just screams him. Maybe this was Ryan Moore. He goes, yeah, I know what the book of Revelation is about. Jesus wins. Feel free to groan. And know that Jesus wins. Make a practice. This is the most important application probably tonight, maybe of this whole week. Make a practice of anticipating the, resur- the resurrection. Life is full of little anticipations. We are anticipating beings, right? You're anticipating... The end of this week, tonight, the talent show, the, the banquet tomorrow night, you're anticipating the beginning of the school year, the end of summer, the end of high school, end of college, you're anticipating your major, your career, your marriage, your children. Life's full of these little anticipations, right? And anticipation is rich and sweet and frustrating at the same time. It's something we love to do. Those aren't wrong. But we need to be in the practice of along with that and above that, with more hope, anticipate and cry out and long for the world made right again make a practice of getting excited about meeting the resurrection. This is what God's people do together on Sunday. Do you know what Sunday is? Sunday is not the last day of the week. It's not the Jewish Sabbath. It's the first day of the week. And what happened in the New Testament, the Jews, God's people, had always celebrated and rested in the Sabbath on the last day of the week, on Saturday. When Jesus rose again on Sunday... The first day of the week. Think about this. And Jesus calls us new creations. And he's restoring creation. There's another time in the Bible when God does some crazy, awesome, beautiful creating work on the first day. It's in Genesis. God's doing his work of creation again. When Jesus rises from the dead and conquers death and begins the work of new creation. What we are doing on Sunday, the main activity, is remembering God started his work of new creation again, and he started with Jesus. We call Sunday in the Wood household, the little girls call it Resurrection Day. Now, Sunday's Resurrection Day. Every week, we begin the week on the first day of creation, celebrating the first day of new creation, the first day of resurrection, the first day when Jesus conquered death, when we were told the final score and that Jesus wins. That's how God intends us to start every week. Make a practice of getting excited about Revelation 21. Ever since I had children, I started reading Revelation 21 every day because Revelation 21 is a description of the new heavens and the new earth. It's of everything made right again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is God's people coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. The former things have passed away. Read that every day. Read it every day. The reason I started, finally started reading as a parent is because somebody told me, you know, either you or your children are going to die first. And I needed the resurrection as soon as somebody told me that. you need the resurrection. Make a practice of anticipating it. It is vital. It is vital in your life as a Christian to know the final score and to be confident of it. And what happens, this is how it begins to change us, and this brings us into the theme of service so that we can close out there. When you rest in the security that because of the work of Jesus, that you will be with Jesus, and all things will be made new again, what happens is you stop getting crazy narcissistic about your needs in this life. You start becoming less needy because you know the final score, and you're never going to be with Jesus. And what that means is you can begin to serve Without regard to yourself. Because you have everything you need. You have resurrection life. How many people know where their parents hide birthday presents in their house? What is up with parents? Like, how do they like lose touch with their inner child that knows how to search out the house and find birthday presents, right? I hope I do a better job as a parent, but I probably won't. I know exactly where my parents put the gift presents. And it was in this locked closet downstairs. They tried to hide the key, but me and my little brother found it. And um, every year, without fail, with, I don't know, I, you know, birthday season's coming around. And I'm from the era of the original Nintendo and the Super Nintendo. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, and and you, you hint, right, Maybe you explicitly ask, maybe those are your parents, or your parents are the hint parents, at what you want for your birthday. And when your um, birthday season comes rolling around, and you know where the gift closet is, you've got to do your due diligence, right? Of like, do they understand like the Super Nintendo, not the Sega? Because the Sega was lame when I was growing up. I don't know if you are Sega people, I don't know if you haven't heard of Sega, but you're like, don't go cheap on the gaming system, let's go with the Super Nintendo. And so you've got to do your due diligence, and crack open the gift closet, and just check, right? Right. <laughs> Thank you, amen. One honest person here. <laughs> so ten days beforehand, you check. It's not there. Nine days, check. Eight days, eight and a half days. You know, starting to check like every four hours, things like that. <laughs> Six days out, the Super Nintendo shows up, Right. The Super Nintendo's there in the gift closet. Now, here's the thing your parents bought it for you, it's yours. It's irrevocably yours. But you got six days till you get it. Right? Now, here's a question How does a 12 year old boy act during those six days? You're perfect during those six days. No, you're winning. Ring the illustration. Just come on. I'll tell you how I reacted. How about that? Perfectly during those six days. The gift was bought. It was mine. Not for six days. In an intervening time. I was the best 12-year-old boy I'd ever been. Y'all you know what Sundays are? Or a peek into the gift closet. What gospel proclamation when the beauty of Christ has preached to us, and we say, I want to be with him, but we know we're not there yet, Yet, he, even though he's made us clean. He has purchased our salvation. It is ours, irrevocably. Yet the full glory and the full sweetness of it is not there yet. What he is doing every time we open the Bible, every time we hear and sing about the sweetness of Jesus, every time we long for things to be right again, he says they will be right again, when he says in Revelation 21 one, are not going to be any more tears, he's giving us a peek into the gift closet. He wants us to peek in it every week. Every Sunday morning and hear and see, all will be made right again. And you see, just like twelve-year-old boy, it has the capacity to completely change us. Being secured in the glory and the resurrection that Jesus has purchased for us, it frees us from stop it frees us from having to seek our own life and our own happiness and our own glory all the time because we know that we have it in Jesus. I mean, Paul's language in Romans 8, it's in Second Corinthians 4, it's all over the place where he says beautiful things. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so the life of Jesus may be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, and our inner nature is being renewed day by day. This body is falling apart. Even the CrossFitters know that their body is falling apart. But our inner nature, thinking of us holding on to Jesus, being renewed and cleaned day by day. And so we know that the God who raised Jesus Christ will also bring us with him into his presence. And so, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians 4.17, this slight momentary affliction, the stuff we're going through in this life. This language is almost offensive, right? Because... Everybody in this room has gone through hard things, and you'll go through harder. Paul says, for this slight, momentary affliction. Do you hear what he calls the hardest things in our life? How could he call the hardest things in our life slight and momentary? It's because of the second half of the uh, statement. This slight, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. He's saying the resurrection is so good that it makes the worst things not that bad. Jesus says that if you seek your life in this life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life in this world, here and now, for Jesus' sake, you'll gain it. The resurrection frees us from having to aim, aim after and seek after and work after everything that you think you need in order to be happy to find your glory in this life now. If I can just get my body right. If I can just find romance. not saying those things are bad, but the belief that those things will be your glory and will be the things that heal you, the belief that those things will be the things that heal you will destroy you. The resurrection frees us to serve because it frees us from those pursuits. It frees us from the belief that if we get these certain things in our life the way we want them, that we'll be happy because the resurrection says, no, 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 it's far better than that. You will be in a place with Jesus, with a perfect body, relationships restored, no more tears. And no more sorrow. That's your glory. Stop seeking glory in these little things you think you can squeeze some glory out and make you feel like the fall doesn't exist. Your glory is the resurrection. He's telling you the score. Says so you don't have to sweat it in this life. This is the key all week. You can't serve until... You finally get over how much you obsess about your own wants and your own needs all the time. You can't serve until you begin to get over how obsessive we are about ourselves. And the thing that has the capacity to pull us out of our self-obsession is Jesus saying, like, listen, you're not even actually good at obsessing about yourself. I have so much more for you than anything you could get by obsessing over yourself. The resurrection the pictures, the reminders all throughout Scripture, the security that is yours in Jesus. Jesus is literally saying to you in the resurrection, you don't have to worry about yourself anymore. I've already taken care of you. When this is breaking in on your heart, when this reality is breaking in your heart, the reality that everything's yours in Jesus, that we are new creations, that we're a new humanity, new bodies, no longer groaning in the new heavens and new earth, and that's his destiny the score is settled. We're just, we're going through the TiVo right now. It changes everything. Jesus wins. That frees you. And the goodness of the life to come is far brighter and it's far richer than any suffering in this life. Paul also said the same thing in Romans 8. We just read it from Romans 8.18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing With the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Jesus wins. And the goodness of the life to come, the goodness of the resurrection, is far brighter and it's far richer than any suffering in this life. So you can go into the suffering. You don't have to be afraid of it. You see how this frees us to serve? This means so you can go and serve. You can go into difficulty with your parents, with your friends, with your culture, with your siblings. And there'll be pain there. And it'll be hard. But your glory is not in the little bit of happiness you can squeeze out of this life. And there will be some. And that is good. And it's from Jesus. The joy is in the resurrection. The score is settled. Jesus wants us to know it every week. He wants us to peek into the gift closet and see. It's purchased. It's there. It's waiting for you. And he wants you to live in light of that. People who know that they are unswervingly headed toward death, live a totally different kind of life. People who know that they are unswervingly headed toward death live a totally different kind of life. But that's not really what we're saying tonight. Actually, we're saying something more. People who know they are unswervingly headed toward the resurrection lead a totally different kind of life. I want to close with the story, spoiler alert, of a beautiful movie you should rent and see. It's amazing, called Gran Torino. Clint Eastwood plays Walt Kowalski. Um, He is an angry, racist, widowed Korean War vet who lives in this kind of suburb in Michigan. He's known within the community of how angry and racist and stingy he is. Uh, His neighborhood over the years has increasingly, uh, the Asian population has taken over. And Walt's at war with this. And it's grievous when you watch this movie. You hate Walt when you meet him. Uh, It's evil. And what happens is with the changing cultural dynamics of the neighborhood, there there are a lot of sweet Asian people, families, but there's this kind of gang element that has a lot of violence. And Walt has this run-ins with the gang over time. These standoffs, um, these encounters and all this kind of stuff, and they've made enemies. And Walt, what happens over the course of the movie is he begins to see how this gang element, these gangsters, are hurting everybody around him, even the Asians that he previously didn't like. And he sees how they're just destroying the fabric of these families, they're endangering the safety of these children, and he begins to hate it, and Walt begins to change. And as the story unfolds, what happens about halfway through the movie is Walt finds out he's dying from lung cancer. And so knowing that he's going to die, he sets a plan in motion. The gangsters have it informed they're already at odds. They're sworn enemies at this point. So he goes over to their house, and the final scene's of the movie, and he stands in the front yard, and they're making these accusations and these threats with each other, and the gangsters are brandishing their weapons. And Walt's standing there, and he puts a cigarette in his mouth, and he knows exactly what he's doing. They're making all these threats, and the tension is rising in the movie. And at the fever pitch of all the threats and the accusations with guns already out, Walt reaches in his pocket quickly. And as he reaches in the pocket, he gets shot down. And he dies right there on the spot. And they come and look at him. And what they find out is he's just reaching for a lighter in his pocket. But you see, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was prompting them to shoot him. Because what happened in the last couple of minutes of the movie, and it's beautiful, is all of those guys go to jail. And the neighborhood's saved. Here's my point. He stopped caring about his own life and saved the neighborhood as soon as he embraced his own death. He knew there was an end. And he knew that all he had was that end. And he was able to love other people as soon as he embraced that end. This is the good news, though. The end that Jesus preaches is not your death. The end that Jesus preaches is death And resurrection. Embrace your death and your resurrection in Jesus. And then you're fit for service. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and we thank you for the promise of a resurrection. It is something so sweet and so good that it's almost hard to believe. So I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would attend to your word and you'll press deep in our hearts that we will be with you again at a time when all things are made new and all tears and all sorrows and all pains and all death is wiped away. In your name we pray. Amen.